Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Happy Thanksgiving to you, but also Happy Advent, right? As today is the first Sunday of Advent, and Advent comes from the Latin word Adventum, which means coming, which means coming. And you know, it's interesting, um, if you did not grow up any kind of background of kind of a liturgical or, or more high church setting, uh, Advent might be somewhat new to you. And uh, Advent has been celebrated for 2,000 years, of course. Uh, it is a season of preparation for what we call the church's season of epiphany. And uh, although our year ends in about 20, uh, I guess 30, 31, 32 days from now, um, the church's calendar ended yesterday. The year is over. And so today is the first day of a brand new year, right? It's called Advent. And it's where we celebrate for the next 28 days the coming of Jesus. And when you think about our world today, the world gets darker and darker and darker and darker, and then Jesus is born. And that's what we celebrate. We are basically stuck between two proclamations. The first advent, Jesus has come, and yet the second advent, Jesus is coming. And so we're in that prophetic season of church life as it relates not just to us personally, but the church of Jesus Christ wide. And uh, it's going to be a journey to, uh, to follow along over the next few weeks. So today is the first Sunday of Advent, and the theme is hope. And so if you do not follow us on Facebook or you don't follow us on Instagram, um, certainly uh, you can uh, receive an, an email later this afternoon that gives the details where we're going to do daily reflections, prayer readings uh, through the entire 28 days. So this is today's, if you saw early this morning, this is the devotion for today as we start into Advent. And uh, each day is going to be something different. So Sunday is going to be worship, Monday is going to be go. So tomorrow you're going to have a, a challenge to do something in your life as it relates to hope. And then we're going to go to prayer, and then we'll go back to worship, and then we'll come back to rest. And so it'll just be a great opportunity for you to celebrate not only as an individual, but for us as a community of faith over these next few weeks uh, and celebrating Advent. So that is, that is an exciting, exciting reality. Amen, church? And so next week we start a series called Lights that will coincide with that as we work our way through December. Also, it's another really special day because as I woke uh, our youngest up this morning, she turned a whole hand today. Whole hand means five, okay? So Harper Grace turned five years old this morning. And so when I woke her up this morning, tickling her, she said, yeah, Dad, I turned a whole hand. And uh, so she's five years old this morning. I don't know what happened to our babe. Mar, uh, Mayor, it's really, really fast. Our little sixth grader right here. I just remember when you're so small. But uh, our kids are growing up. So it's a, if you see her out in the uh, lobby, make sure you, you greet her and tell her happy birthday. If you have a Bible, go into Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. I want to preach to you a message today that uh, is a special message, uh, meaning a one-off message outside of our series that we just finished and yet not into our series that we'll begin next week. And I've been kind of holding on to this, allowing it to marinate, if you will, for some months. And uh, just want to uh, take the opportunity to share what God's put on my heart. It's good to see Josh Poole here. Josh, good to see you, man. Josh is, uh, of course, part of our school of ministry and part of our church for so many years. And now 
is a student pastor at uh, Go Church. I keep saying South Metro, but Go Church down in Sharpsburg and Noonan. And so, Josh, awesome to have you with us. You feel good this morning? You know, one of the ways you know God is at work in a people is when they bear a, a characteristic or a Christian trait that is in line with the kingdom of God and is out of line with the host culture. And I don't know if you know this, but when I came into the building this morning, you all are happy, you all are loving, you laugh easily, you smile. And uh, if you don't know this or not, that is not the current American trend. So what that tells me about this church is that that's the spirit of Jesus at work among us, right? The spirit of Jesus at work in our lives. Matthew chapter 14, we're going to begin reading in verse 22. Can I ask you to stand with me in the sanctuary for the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 14, let's begin in verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountain side by himself to pray. Now, this is Matthew 14. Jesus had started Matthew's gospel by saying the same thing. He told the disciples to go into their prayer closet and pray in secret. And now Jesus is doing what he asked others to do. He's modeling for the disciples what he has taught the disciples. And later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land. And the boat was being buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, the disciples, that is, walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost, literally phantasma, a phantom. We'll talk about that word in a minute. They said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter then responds, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Verse 29. Come, he said, and Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink, cried out. Don't you love the gut-level honesty here of Peter, the instant response? Lord, save me! And immediately Jesus reached out his hand. He didn't let him waterboard for a little bit and suck down some water into his lungs like we often believe, or the God that we falsely believe as we grow up sometimes in religious circles. He immediately reached out his hand and he caught him and he said, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? Verse 32, When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Father, in these moments we have together, we pray for your Holy Spirit to arrest our attention, that God, our mind's attention, our heart's affection would be upon you, Jesus, and that, Lord, you would receive all the honor, all the praise, all the glory. Speak to our hearts, comfort us, strengthen us, challenge us. Just do not leave us the way you found us this morning. We give you praise and thanksgiving in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it is an interesting time we've had in the last 18 months, to say the least. I mean, just think just for the last 18, 19 months, what has transpired in our nation. I mean, the Trump impeachment trial, right, 18, 19 months ago. We had a virus start at the end of 2019 in the province there in China. And often the world was a little bit behind on the reality of the export of that virus. And by February, going into March of 2020, we were in lockdown, right? And fear and terror began to kind of grip the heart's of so many people. We had 
the harbinger of the stock market that has in the stock market doom, I should say, the Korean Missile Crisis. Then we had the Iran Missile Strike at the same time in 2020, and we had the trade warp of China, and then we had 5G and all its conspiracies, and the introduction of 5G, and then you have the multiple variants that have consistently going to continue to come out, by the way, in the months and the years to come. And all of those things, we then move into the end of 2020, we have another election cycle. And we have all of the propaganda surrounding that election cycle. And then we have all of uh, the, the actual election itself. And then the claim to steal the election. And then after the claim to steal the election, we have the, the storming of the Capitol. And so it comes all the, the insurrection of that Capitol day. And then we have the death after one after the other of black men at the hands of white men in our nation. And white men at the hands of black men. And one race being pitted against another race, and the challenge and division that our country has felt. And there is just honestly so much going on. I mean, like, we enter into this Advent season, and if we're honest, what do we feel right now? Like, well, what do you feel right there inside of your chest? It feels, if we're honest, a little bit tight. There is so much anxiety in the air. Yet, I want to propose to us the anxiety is nothing new. It's going to be communicated to you like it is new, but it is actually nothing new. Let me take you back for a few moments to a year. A year, 1997. 1997, a few key events transpired in our world. If you remember, in 1997, it was the year that Princess Diana died. It was the year that a single mom by the name of J.K. Rowling in England, released a book called Harry Potter Into the Wild. That was 1997. It was the year that Steve Jobs left his job and returned back to Apple. It would be another nine years before the first iPhone would be released. It was the year, 97, where the Mars Pathfinder, right, landed on Mars. Gas was $1.22 per gallon. The Dow was at less than... 8,000 in 1997, and it was the year that Tennessee indeed would win the national championship in football, all right, and beat Florida State in January of 2018. But 1997 marked actually a much quieter, off-the-radar event. It was the year of the publication of a book called The Failure of Nerve. Now, most of you heard of this book by now, The Failure of Nerve by a man by the name of Edwin Friedman. Now, if you're not familiar with Friedman, Friedman was a Jewish rabbi therapist who became an expert in what we call now, psychology calls the family systems theory. I'm going to abbreviate today's message, the FST, the family systems theory. Then later in his life, he would take all of the raw data and all of the research on family systems theory, which is, is essentially the basic idea that all of relationships function together in a system. And those relationships fit certain dynamics and they fit certain molds. He would take the raw data that he did and, or he researched and he would apply it to the larger systems. The first thing he would apply it to was the synagogue. He was Jewish. The second thing he applied it to was the church. Then he eventually applied it to the business world and then he eventually applied it to the nation state America itself. He became the most sought out advisor at the White House in 1997 and 1998. 
as a family systems theory expert, as a psychologist or sociologist. He was then asked by multiple heads of state to present what he has found. In his book called The Failure of Nerve, he takes all of that data and he applies it to the issue of leadership. The issue of leadership. He applies what he has discovered to what it means to be a leader. Now, this book, which I had to read initially in college, my undergrad, I would consider, without a doubt, some say the greatest leadership book ever written. I would say definitely top three leadership books that has, I have personally read. Now, it's a bit dense. It's somewhat thick. And so what I want to do for a moment is just kind of give you a brief summary if you don't want to read for the next 20 hours of your life, because it will be at least about 20 hours of your life. His basic premise, are you ready? His basic premise is that the West, as has been documented by almost every sociologist, is built around a myth. And our Western culture is built around the myth of progress. We're built around a myth of progress which is a faith, it's a quasi-faith, but it's a faith that human history is moving to a utopian or at least a better future. You hear it all the time in America, we are pre-programmed in the West to believe this. Well, now that I know, and we think then all of a sudden that mistake's not going to happen again. We hear things like, when is it going to return to normal pre-COVID? It will never return to normal. That's not the way human history works. We have been bought in as Westerners to the lie of progress. That somehow, someway, all cultures progress. They move forward in a linear fashion. And so we hear things like, well, it's 2021. You hear people make promises, empty promises. Well, you know, now we will soon get to. But most ancient societies, and still today all Eastern societies and all African societies... They think of history as cyclical like the seasons, whereas in the West, we view history as something that is linear. So we think it's going to progress. We think it's going to get better, and we're constantly looking for the better. Well, Friedman said, if you actually look at the raw, hard data, don't look at anything but the data we see. He says, if you interpret it objectively, he says, now watch this, and this is in 1997. He said, the West is progressing economically. And the West is progressing technologically, meaning right now more people have more money than they've ever had in U.S. history. Or as we can say, they, our standard of living is as high as it's ever been from any and every age group and generation. Science and medicines and the life expectancy of Americans is as high and as advanced as it's ever been. And yet he would argue That at the same time, the data shows that the West is fully regressing emotionally and relationally. So in 1997, he begins to communicate a cycle of what's going to happen in the West. A vicious cycle he calls anxiety. A vicious cycle that self-perpetuates and causes our culture to deteriorate from the inside out as we regress emotionally and as we regress relationally. Now, any of you who work with Gen Z, let me just define Gen Z. Gen Z means you were born, this is the live birth generation on earth right now, born between 1997 and 2012. 
Now I'm in 1980 to a 1997, so I'm a, I'm a millennial, right? And then you got the Gen X before that, and you got the baby boomers before that, then you got the silent generation, or builders before that, and you got the silent generation after that. And now you have the generation alpha after 2012. So anything 12 to now 21 is generation alpha. So when you talk about Gen Zers, so those right now, those generation of people are just now coming into leadership across all of America. So the highest of them right now are 21 to 23 years of ages, and they're no longer in our youth groups. They're now leaders on our worship teams. They're now pastors in our churches. They're now leaders in the business world. They're now our teachers coming out of college into our elementary schools, into our public schools. These are the Gen Zers, and they are in leadership. And you all know that as wonderful as they are, I will make the confession, in many ways, I think the Gen Zers are much better than my millennial generation But the truth of the matter is Gen Zers are marked by a generation-wide epidemic of mental health issues and anxiety in particular. More than any other generation that we've seen. Literally, mental health right now on college campuses is a global Western problem. It's not a global African problem, and it's not a global Eastern problem. It's a global Western problem. But across generations... Anxiety is way up. I want to give to you a couple stats. A recent Pew survey found that 47% of people were more anxious in 2019 than they were in 2018. Where you say, well, I can't imagine what that is at 2020. We don't have those stats yet. They put those out at the end of this year. So we know that 50% of people were more anxious in 19 pre-COVID than in 18. Recent study, this is like last month. 75% of teenagers in America say anxiety is the number one problem of their entire generation. The number one problem of their peers. Stats on mental health is, in general, is through the roof. And scientists now are using the word epidemic. They're not calling it a problem anymore. They're calling it an epidemic of a generation. And it's not just anxiety and depression, because that's the ones we hit in church a lot of times. It's not just that. Look at the numbers and stats right now of bipolar, of schizophrenia, not to even mention the relational milieu, the breakdown of the family, divorce at an all-time high, insecure attachment issues from our children, wars and rumors of wars, all of these things right now in the West, it can feel with gender dysphoria and transgender issues and sexuality all up in the air and the absence of meaning and purpose in a secular worldview and people don't know that there's any meaning and people don't know that there's any purpose it can feel a little bit like the west is coming off her rails this is exactly what friedman communicates in his book friedman identified a five-step self-perpetuating cycle of anxiety which in the west is regrossing or regressing I should say in an emotional and relational down spiral. Now I want to go ahead and tell you he doesn't in his book frame it the way I'm about to frame it. He frames it as five aspects of an anxious culture but what I want to adapt it I want to adapt it as a cycle because I think there is a forward inertia to each step. I think that one step leads to the next step. Let me talk to you about that five-step cycle. The first is reactivity. This is just me on my PowerPoint, so this is my, my graphics, okay? The first one is reactivity. The vicious cycle of self-perpetuating anxiety in our world is kicked off by a culture of reactivity. Let's see if it sounds any bit like the culture you and I live in. Where people constantly react to the external events of life 
with internal anxiety, with internal fear, with internal anger, and internal outrage. So the 24-7 digital news cycle, meaning uh, just 20 years ago, you could only get the news at multiple points throughout the day. You had to watch the news. Now you have a 24-7 digital news cycle that essentially thrives off of the reaction because what it does as Americans is it generates hits. And when it generates hits, it drives up advertising revenue because all of the big companies want to advertise on articles that have major hits. And so what happens is all of the media begins to make money off of our anxiety. And they begin to sell anxiety to the human public right? They begin to sell and they make money off of our addiction to our phones. And the more we're addicted to our phones, the more money they make. Often, I want to say this, the outrage that we feel as a culture is couched as a certain social justice issue. Okay? I get it. We couch it that way and it's couched that way from the media. But even when they are legitimate issues, I want to tell you that the media is not concerned about the social justice They are using it as a way to garner followers and make money off of you. To make money off of me. Y'all, I want you to think of in the last 18 months, how many news stories, even from prestigious journalists, like at the New York Times, they write stories and entire articles off a series of tweets from somebody that morning. Meaning the tweets happened that morning, And they've already written articles by noon that then get shared a million times on Facebook. Where an offhand comment from a celebrity or an offhand comment from a politician is just feeding the outrage monster to make money out of you. So the anxiety cycle kicked off by reactivity, which leads us to number two. That's called the herding instinct. Herding instinct. Not hurting, but herding. This is a product of number one. So even though we are very individualistic in the West and we talk about how individualistic we are and how separated we are, we cannot change what it means to be human. And secular psychologists suggest or call us humans, they call us social animals. Now, I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian. So while I reject the categorization of humans made in the image of God as animals, there is something really true about the reality we are hardwired for a herd mentality. We are hardwired to mob. We are hardwired to get together with others behind a cause. Sometimes whether or not we know what that cause really is or really looks like or not. We are hardwired for that mentality. So as our culture, watch this, is sucked into reactivity. What happens with Americans is we begin to just follow the crowd and we are sucked into a mob mentality overnight. And as we're sucked into the mob mentality, this then creates a culture of, number three, blame displacement. So what is blame displacement? Okay, so Friedman says, instead of examining and searching out the underlying causes that are creating all of that toxicity and craziness, we focus on the symptoms, watch this, and we look at each of the symptoms in isolation instead of looking at the picture as a whole. And then, watch this, Pastor Chad preaches on this many times from this pulpit, we as individuals and we as a culture, we as a community, instead of taking a proactive approach, what we are responsible for to affect change, we retreat into a perpetual victim status where we blame others and we blame everybody else who's on our feed 
and we blame society and we blame the issues and external forces. And as we blame throw or blame shift and it's thrown around, a cultural paralysis sets in. And now we're paralyzed to actually take responsibility for the things that are in our control. And once that cultural paralysis sets in, there is a, and this is Friedman in 97, he said in America, a suffocating fear of offending others will destroy us. A suffocating fear of of offending other people. And he says, when a culture gets to this, it prevents all renewal. Which then in turn leads us to number four, a quick fix mentality. A quick fix mentality is the kind of instant gratification that we get from the Western culture. Now this is all the way from text messaging to social media to Amazon where we are made, right? It makes us getting used or makes us used to, I should say, getting what we want right when we want it, right? I mean, you can have same day delivery with Amazon. This in turn, what does it do? It creates a low threshold for pain. So when you get instant gratification, your emotional resilience wanes. And the threshold of pain begins to wane. Which keeps us then from what the Bible calls endurance. Or it keeps us from what the Bible calls perseverance. You remember what the book of Romans tells us? What does it say? God wants to give us an endurance that is supplied by hope. That's Advent. We have hope that it won't always be this way. So that gives us endurance in the presence. But see, when, I don't, when I'm constantly getting what I want when I want it, then endurance begins to wane. And it makes us look for the silver bullet. And what is the silver bullet? It's just quick and simple solutions for, for long-term, complex, very difficult problems. Y'all, this is true of millennials, but it's even more true of Gen Zers. Now, I don't want to beat Gen Zers up. There are a lot of great things about the emerging generation, but can I just go ahead and tell us? Their level of emotional resilience is at the lowest point than probably Americans have ever had. Their emotional stamina is shot. It's not there. Finally, all of this leads to number five, a lack of what... He calls well-differentiated leadership. Now, that's all psychological speech. Let me give it to you in layman's terms. All all well-differentiated leadership means is this. It'll make clear a lot of sense. Is a leader or a person with a clear differentiation or a clear boundary between this is me and that is you? I'm here with you, but I'm not you. And I don't have to react like you're reacting. This is a well-differentiated person. Now watch this. This is where we're going today. How does, that, how does Jesus get us to become those kind of disciples? Well, watch this. Neurologists say today that 30% of the neurons in our brains are called mirror neurons. When you're under five, it's 60%. Meaning when you see somebody smile at you, what do you do? Smile. This is how kids learn their entire world. It's called mirror neurons. They're mirroring back to the other human whatever they see in that human. Now, when somebody walks into the room and they're deeply angry, what do you do? You get angry. It's that hurting mentality. When somebody walks into the room and they're deeply anxious, what begins to happen? There's a deep anxiety. You can cut it, right? It's like in the air. There's a deep anxiety. And listen, this is not a bad thing. This is how God wired you. It's actually very beautiful. Can I just go ahead and say to you real quick, we are created in the image of a relational Trinitarian God 
which means we are relational at our core, which means we can't help but relate to other people. We relate as humans. But this is a real challenge when you are not a well-differentiated person or a well-differentiated leader. Because when someone or a phone or a TV show or a community or a society in front of you is full of outrage or full of anger or full of blame shifting, it's hard and extremely hard to not get sucked into that, to not become that. And, and, and it's hard to, to have this clear line of distinction where, hey, this person is angry, this person is anxious, this person is sharing all the blame, but I'm okay right now. And that doesn't have to permeate the membrane of my spirit. I can sit here with you right now while you are freaking out. And I'll sit here well differentiated, calm, full of compassion, full of empathy, full of love, full of understanding. But when, what happens when leaders can't become differentiated themselves, this is what Friedman says. He says, these type of leaders in the West can't break the cycles of anxiety because you can't lead well in an environment of reactivity, an environment of blame shifting, and low emotional resilience. So as the saying goes, are you ready? We get the leaders we deserve. Folks, that's true of America's politics too. We get what we deserve and the more they get you outraged, the worse our leaders will be. We get what we deserve. We are, in, a, in essence, becoming a culture perpetuated in anxiety. And often those leaders are the ones who prey on the cycle of anxiety to get what they want, right? Now, Friedman says the only way to stop this cycle is to inject into the middle of it. Next slide, watch this of what he calls a non-anxious presence. This is not my phrase, this is his phrase. By a non-anxious presence, he means a well-differentiated person who's calm and at peace with God, at peace with themselves, that, that, that can say, that is you, and this is me. I'm here to listen to your issues, but that is you, this is me. I'm here, and I'm present in love, and I'm present in kindness, but I'm not going to be sucked into all the anxiety and the outrage and the blame shifting. I am here to offer a calm, wise, non-anxious presence. And that's the only way this cycle can be broken into, be it via family, be it via small group, be it via connect group, be it via church, be it via city, be it via a nation. Now, a quarter of a century later, can I propose to you, and I think you could probably give me a good hearty amen, Friedman's paradigm is more perceptive than ever. He had great perception, particularly in the political world and the turmoil of our area. Now, you go to a Books a Million. How many of you have ever been to Books a Million up in Canton, next to the Dicks? Okay, so in that Books a Million, which I quite frequently visit, they have a recommended reading wall. Sometimes it's in the middle, sometimes it's over to the right. And I call it, I have begun calling it the freaking out wall. Okay? Because what happens in the freaking out wall is books written about all the things. Right? It's the New York Times bestseller about climate change and President Trump. And human sexuality and President Trump. And the oil crisis and President Trump. 
and the challenges of sexuality and President Trump and the issues that beseech our nation and President Trump and Joe Biden and his birthday and President Trump, and, right? And the whole freaking out wall is about us as a culture wigging out, going crazy with all kinds of anxiety, all kinds of fear, all kinds of outrage, and all kinds of anger. And it, it goes without being said today, church, that our world, listen to me, church, is in desperate need of followers of Jesus to step into these situations with a non-anxious presence and break that vicious cycle. In fact, I would propose to you that this might be the call of God in our generation. That as spirit-filled believers, Acts 1-8 believers, we have by very definition nothing to be afraid of. We are empowered by God, by the Spirit of God, to what? Be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, the trick is this. Easier said, right, than it is actually done. Easier to talk about it than do it. It's not like, oh, cool, I'm going to be a non-anxious person the rest of my life. I got it. Pastor Craig, I just didn't know you wanted us to be, right? I didn't, I didn't realize God desired that, right? I'm just going to turn down the anxiety. I'm going to stop being nervous. In a culture spinning out of control with anxiety, how do we become a non-anxious presence? Well, that's where Friedman's book is good, but Friedman's book is not really helpful. But the story we read in Matthew 14 today is really helpful. The story of Matthew chapter 14 that we read, let's go back to it again, offers us a way forward. If not a way forward, at least a glimpse of a way forward to becoming the disciple Jesus wants us to be. And what is that? To be the type of leaders that are free from fear and can be used by God in our world today. So look at Matthew chapter 14 again. Let's go through the text. Verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get in the boat, go him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went on a mountainside by himself to pray. Right? Later that night he was there alone. The boat was already a considerable distance from land and buffeted by the waves. Anybody ever been in that season of life? where your boat is considerable distance from the land and being buffeted by the waves. This is also called church planting. Okay, verse 24 is called church planting. All right, he could have used synonymous terms there. Okay, so the, he's being buffeted by the wind and the waves. And look at verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them. Can I translate that a little more accurately? Verse 25, the more little translation, your Bible might say it, is during the fourth watch of the night. Does anybody say that? The fourth watch of the night. Now, let me go ahead and give to you what that is. The Romans, this is not the Jews, the Romans divided the night into four three-hour watches. Four times three is 12. The fourth watch of the night was between 3 a.m. and dawn. We would say this is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Meaning, the disciples had been at the storm for nine hours. They're exhausted. They got nothing left in them. They're being buffeted for Nine hours. You think you slept bad last night. Imagine being in a boat threatening to be overturned for nine hours. They're exhausted. Verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost, and cried out in fear. The literal translation, they screamed in terror. Y'all, this is what? The Sea of Galilee. This is not an ocean. This, this Jewish culture is not a seafaring culture. So don't think that they know the sea. This is a Bedouin culture. 
A Bedouin culture doesn't understand the sea. They're scared of water. Did you know that Jews to this day, a lot of them are still scared of water? You know why? Because in Hebrew mythology, all water represents evil. All water represents chaos. It represents Leviathan. You ever read the book of Proverbs? That Loch Ness monster. It represents anarchy. And they said, it's a ghost. You know what the Greek word they said there? It's probably Peter. He's the loudest. He said, phantasma. You know what word we get from there? Phantom. And there was a common perception in the first century that, listen, those who died in the lake, their souls would come and haunt other people at night. Now imagine, you've been walking in, or been fighting in this boat for nine hours, and a ghost starts walking to you on the water. Okay, you got to understand the context here. All their mind is thinking, this is like the, the, the disembodied spirit of somebody else, right? They know this. They, they know very well Hebrew mythology. And now this, this ghost is walking to them at night. So they're terrified. And they're delirious. And now a dude walks to you on the lake at 3 a.m. Anxiety's high. Would you agree? Verse 27, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. The literal translation of verse 27 is not take courage. It is I. The Greek word there, or two words, is ego a me. Now, if you have a little theological mind, you've probably heard that phrase before. I've preached on it several times. Ego a me means I am. It's the exact phrase God uses back in the book of Exodus chapter 3 when he tells Moses that, tell the, that Pharaoh, the one who sent you, is I am that I am. And so Jesus on the water says, I am that I am. The same word in Exodus. The exact same word. Now, can I give you Bible nerd alert? You ready for Bible nerd alert? In verse 22 through verse 36, this phrase, it is I, which literally is I am, is exactly in the middle of the story. There are 90 Greek words on the left of that word, and there are 90 Greek words on the right of that phrase. And Matthew is trying to get you to see that in the midst of every storm, I am that I am. In the midst of whatever it is that you're facing, I am is right in the middle. So Jesus comes on to the shore, or on to the, 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 the sea, and they're, they're going crazy. Their anxiety is at an all time, they're in a cycle of anxiety, and Jesus says, I am. Matthew is saying that in the center portion of this story, this person coming to you is not a ghost. This is actually the I am coming to you in your storm. This is not a phantom. This is not a phantasma. This is not a phantom. This is not a disembodied spirit. This is the strong son of God walking to you in the storm. Verse 28, Peter said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, come. Verse next slide. He said, come. And Peter got down in the boat. He walked in the water and he came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. He began to sink and said, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and called him. And he said, you of little faith. Now, I want you to see that phrase, you of little faith. There is no preposition in the Greek. This is you little faith. This is like a nickname Jesus has given him. Hey, you little faith. This is not you of little faith. This is you little faith. Now, let me, let me throw something in here real quick. That could be interpreted as a dig. Like, oh, you little faith. No, no, no. I think this is what a loving father says to his kid when he's scared. Oh, you little faith. No need to be full of doubt. So there's, this is not you of little faith. This is you little faith. 
Look at verse 32. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand, and when they climbed in the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now you all know this story well, don't you? And for good reason. This story over the years has hit a nerve in the human psyche, even outside the Christian faith. So much so, so, much so that a storm has now become a metaphor for a hard time of life. Even non-believers use that phrase. My season is a storm. This is a stormy season. And there's so many layers to this story. I've preached on this story many times. I don't want to hit all of the complexities or layers exegetically. But I want to offer one little insight to this story that I don't know. I've never really had hit me the way it's hit me recently. I missed it, if you will, for many years. When I understood it, it's like it's become a whole new dimension to me. And it's very simple. Are you ready? This is the second storm story in Matthew's gospel. If you read Matthew from beginning to end, which it's designed for us to do, did you know this? All the gospels are meant or written for you to read them in one sitting. There's a progression to them. If you sit down and read Matthew's gospel from beginning to end, this story should feel like deja vu. It should feel, whoa, haven't we been here before? Because it's back in chapter 8, and now it's in chapter 14. And the two stories, watch this church, are very similar, but there's a different part to each one. Watch this. Both are about storms. Yes. Both are on the Sea of Galilee. Yes. Both are at night. Yes. In both, Jesus calls them, you little faith. Yes. The disciples are scared for their life in both. Yes. But they are different in that in the first storm, Jesus is in the boat. Remember, he's asleep in the stern. And the second one, he is out of the boat and he's nowhere to be found because he's up on a mountain by himself. So in the first story, Jesus asked the question, why are you so afraid? Matthew chapter 8. In the second one, he gives them a command do not be afraid. Now listen, watch how powerful. In one way of reading Matthew is he is saying we can't just wake up one morning and decide to become a non-anxious presence. You can't just wake up one day and have a premonition or epiphany to say, you know what, I am done being nervous. That's why Jesus does not command them to not be afraid in the first story. He asks them a question in the first, this is so powerful. He doesn't say do not be afraid. He asks them a question and he says, why are you so afraid? Why are you of such doubt? And instead what Jesus is showing through Matthew's gospel is that we have to become. We aren't born. We, aren't, we have to be made this way. It is an instinctual. We have to be made to become the kind of people through our discipleship to Jesus who are made free of fear and we become a non-anxious presence in the world around us. That God, through our life storms, makes us a non-anxious presence for the world around us. That we can really be free from fear. Next slide. This is the challenge of our day. You say, Craig, what do you mean? See, we want to, next slide, become overcomers, but we want to become, next slide, overcomers with nothing to overcome. Do you have that slide? Um, back up just a little bit. Don't, yeah, just back up, back up. 
Yep, next one. Maybe you don't have it. Okay. We want to become overcomers with nothing to overcome. We want to become people who ultimately feel and experience a freedom without the healing touch of God. And Jesus really, honestly, is too good to us to allow us to get away with it. He puts us through a series of events where we ultimately become non-anxious people. So I've been asking the question recently. How do we cooperate with Jesus in our discipleship to become that? Now, I don't think there's a formulaic answer to that, but I've been playing around with, with a counter cycle to Friedman's five. I want to show you real quick a counter cycle, ultimately a counter cycle from the life of Jesus. Now, let me have one point of clarification here. Okay, What I'm not attempting to do is to exegete Matthew 14. And this is also not my way to try to simplify the way of Jesus to just one little program. Hear me. It's not what I'm doing here. What I'm doing is sharing with us five practices from the life and the teachings of Jesus that can counter habit against the cycle of anxiety. And I believe if we practice them consistently, these five, they're practices that open us up to Jesus and they form in us a non-anxious presence to the world around us. So first off is this, is slowing. Slowing. This is what Pete Scazzaro in his book, Emotional Healthy Spirituality, he calls a slowdown spirituality. How beautiful is that phrase? He calls it a slowdown Christianity. One of the first things you notice when you read the Gospels for the first time, did you ever notice this? That Jesus, if rarely ever, was ever in a hurry. It's very interesting. He was never in a hurry. Willard, Dallas Willard, was once asked to describe Jesus in one word. You can find this on YouTube. <laughs> and Dallas Willard is a discipleship guru. They said, hey, if you had to define Jesus in one word, and he stepped back and he thought about it, and you know what he said? relaxed. I thought that was so interesting. If he had one word to describe the Son of God, it would be relaxed. Now Willard, he writes in the language of a philosopher, but he's actually a charismatic. He was a spirit-filled guy. Most people don't know this. He actually attended a spirit-filled church for the last 20 years of his life, and he writes like a philosopher, so people think he's you know, very, very, very liturgical. But in his book on hearing the voice of God, which to me is this point is still probably one of the best books ever on the subject, he writes these words, Jesus will walk right up to you and talk to you. How beautiful is that? On hearing the voice of God, Jesus will walk right up to you and talk to you. That's about as biblical as it gets. That's about as spirit-filled as it gets. So Willard saw that Jesus' pace of life was so much slower than our own. Now think about how many times stories and teachings in the four Gospels are actually interruptions to what Jesus was already planning to do. I mean, most of the teaching besides the Sermon on the Mount we get because somebody interrupted Jesus. And on his way to do something else, he lived at such a pace that interruptions were actually divine opportunities. Look at how he responds to the interruptions. C.S. Lewis, he once said... How you respond to an interruption is who you really are. Oh, that's like death to the soul, right? Because someone like me, oh gosh, get it done, type A personality. He says, how you react to interruption is who you are really spiritually. Right? It's, that's a hard verse. That's a hard statement. But Jesus' manner and Jesus' soul and his pace of life was so organized that there was enough space, everybody say margin, 
enough space in his life, and he was enough pace, even though he was active, and Jesus was very generative, meaning he was making things happen all the time. There was a pace where he was open to interruptions, whereas often we are not. And Jesus, for him, it was all in the name of love. A Japanese theologian who had a beautiful, has a beautiful collection of essays, you can find them online, called The Three Miles Per Hour God. You, you might like them. He writes, which three miles per hour, by the way, is the speed of walking. And he talks about God walking slowly because God is love. Can I give you his quote? This is from a Japanese theologian. He says, there, there's that slide I was looking for earlier. We'll come back to that one in the next gathering. That's, that's it right there. Next one, notice what he says. This, this theologian, next, next slide. Yes, God walks slowly because he's love. If he's not love, he'd have gone much faster. Love has a speed. It has an inner speed. It's a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It is slow, yet it is Lord over all other speeds since it's the speed of love. If we are going to walk through Woodstock and Cherokee County and Atlanta and offer love and a non-anxious presence, we will have to slow down. We'll have to slow down enough to look at people in the eyes and determine what's going on in that life. We'll have to slow down. That secondly leads us to the second part of the break in the vicious cycle. That's called Sabbath and rest. One of the main things you see in Jesus' lifestyle is this rhythm of retreat and return. Retreat and return. Retreat by himself, return. Jesus was oscillating between these, right? Between time alone, time with others. Time with the Father, time in ministry. Time in and getting direction from the Father, time and preaching, teaching, and healing. There was a balance and attention. Can I just propose to us one of the greatest challenges of following Jesus in the modern era is getting that balance right. And it's a moving target based on your personality, and it's a moving target based upon the call of God for your life. Because some of you have more free time than others have free time based upon your calling. It's just not fair. It's not meant to be fair. It's just the way life is. And so, depending on your calling, depending on God's design, depending on your own personality, it is a moving target. I love Luke's summary of Jesus' ministry in Luke 5. You know what he says? Jesus, this is his exact words, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I want to ask you a question. Can that be said of you when you die? When you go for your eulogy, can people say, Sam often withdrew to lonely places and prayed? Can it be said, Craig often withdrew to lonely places and prayed? Could it be said, Meredith often withdrew from people and went to lonely places to pray? That's Jesus' ministry. In fact, I would argue that the more in demand Jesus was, the more he had to sneak away to pray and to sneak away to rest and to gather his soul and to get direction from the Father. I'm reading a Quaker theologian right now by the name of Elton Trueblood. And Elton Trueblood, fabulous, fabulous theologian, he talked about this idea that the more public a leader is, the more he or she has to learn to hide. And the further you get in leading a church or leading God's people, the more you have to hide. The more you have to get away. And he based it, Elton Trueblood based it, based it on the life of Jesus and there's so much truth to it, right? The more you lead, the more responsibility you have, the more influence you have, we tend to go the opposite direction, don't we? The more responsibility you have, we tend to be 
more present, right? The more stuff we have on our plate, the more we are there for everybody's plate. The more that we take on personally, right? The more we're involved and doing and more and more things. But what if that is actually the strategy of the enemy? What if it is actually the strategy of God that you have to do less to actually do more? What if that, and let me just throw this out there, that means we need more time in prayer. Now, there's a massive controversy in the sports world today called load management. Now, whether or not you like sports or not, I think this is fascinating. There's a, this is an old principle in, in baseball, but it's new in, in the NBA. And this principle of load management is this. is The more important a player is to the team, the less they need to play and the more they need to rest. But that doesn't work because when you pay high bucks to go see the Hawks or to go see the Lakers, you're not there to watch LeBron sit on the sideline and take care of his soul. You're there to take an Instagram reel of LeBron because you paid big bucks to watch him. So that doesn't make sense to our culture. But the idea is the more key a player is to a church, the more the mental and emotional and relational and physiological and psychological stress is put on that person's soul so they actually need to play less and they need to rest more. They need to be involved less in many ways and resting more. In, in this book called Ordering Your Private World by Gordon McDonald, this is what he said. He pastored for decades. My favorite line in his book is this. He said, Jesus knew his limits well. Strange as it may seem, he knew what we conveniently forget. Time must be properly budgeted for the gathering of inner strength and resolve. Oh, this is the line. In order to compensate for one's own spiritual weaknesses when the true spiritual warfare begins. What a line. What a line. How often do we do the enemy's work for him? It's been said that rest is a weapon for spiritual warfare. Come on, Caleb, you can come, my friend. You can come up, you playing keys? No, he's not? Okay. Rest, and it was awesome playing the keys today, though, by the way. You did a great job. Yeah, let Caleb know how awesome. So rest and sleep and prayer are a weapon against the enemy and they're a weapon against our own flesh. Are they not? It is very hard. Look at me, church. It is very hard to tempt a well-rested, emotionally healthy, happy person. But it is very easy to tempt an exhausted, overtired workaholic person under chronic stress so this is one of the ways we break the cycle can I bless you and encourage you with a practice of Sabbath rest here's the third one koinonia everybody say koinonia that just means fellowship partnership it's used all through the book of Acts to mean community or sharing it's a relational bond with partnership did you know koinonia was actually originally a business term it's two deep soul friendship Jesus had this with the three, didn't he? Peter, James, and John. He had koinonia with. Jesus said, I don't call you slaves anymore, for slaves don't know what their masters do. And I've called you friends. That's koinonia. So you know what the master's doing. Now more than ever, especially for us in a post-Christian apocalypse like America, we live in. We have a deep need for koinonia. That's why gatherings like this are such a gift. Does anybody consider Sunday gatherings a gift to your soul besides me? Do you know why we're going to 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. in January? 
You know why we're going? Because you people like to hang out with each other. And we want to provide more opportunity for koinonia. Because when the gathering gets done, what do you do? We don't have a church where people run off. We have a church where people koinonia. We have a church where people fellowship. You like each other. You love each other. You want to spend time with one another. That's why you're in connect groups. You want your life to be connected. Listen, you don't need 100 people like this. You just need a few people like this. You need deep, long-term, honest friendships. Like what you see in all of these other leaders around us. This is the stuff of the kingdom of God. Which leads us to the fourth way to break the cycle, and that's contemplative prayer. Now, I know people are hesitant to that word because there's all kinds of mixed reactions in the spirit-filled church to being contemplative because we think contemplatives on one side and charismatics are on the other side. All of the introverts in the room are like, yeah, I love it, sign me up, contemplative prayer. And then all of the me's in the room are like, no, we don't need contemplative prayer. Let's get some like demonstrative prayer, right? Let's come together for intercession, right? Extroverts and church planners, they are allergic to contemplative prayer. But Jesus often withdrew to pray. And it just says he prayed. It didn't say what kind of prayer. Can I tell you? We have prayer team in this church. But prayer is often synonymous with intercession in the charismatic tradition. It's all about intercession, asking God to do things. That is one aspect of prayer. But Jesus in John 15 said, abide in my words and abide in the Father. That means resting in the Father's love for you. That's not intercession. That's a resting or abiding in connection in the Spirit. That's also a kind of prayer. And that feels like work sometimes, this intercession prayer for people that are already tired. There is a time and place for intercession, but there's also a time and place for resting prayer. I love, 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 love Ronald Rawhauser's definition of prayer. This is his definition of prayer. He calls it relaxing into God's goodness. You, you just fall. You just, you just relax into the goodness of God. You just relax into his kindness. Is that what you think about prayer? I'm just kind of laying on Jesus. Just relaxing his goodness. And the Catholic mystics, they point out that the opposite of contemplation is not action, it's reaction. Meaning so much of our leadership is reactive, it's not contemplative. Meaning you just react to the tyranny of the urgent and the stimuli around you and the outrage and, and the fads and react and react and react and react. And contemplative leadership, what you see in the life of Jesus, is not reactive. It is thoughtfulness. There's a poise. There's a wisdom. Mark chapter 1, I love it. Jesus is up all night healing. And the Bible says early the next morning while it was dark, he went off to pray in the wilderness. He comes back. And you know what the disciples say? We've got a, 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 a crusade set up for you, Jesus, to preach, teach, and heal. And you know what Jesus says to them? No, we're going to another city and town to preach the gospel. How would he do that if he didn't have the poise to meet with the Father early in the morning? He would have confused the good opportunity for a God opportunity. But it wasn't the God opportunity. The God opportunity was to leave those people and to go to the next city to preach the gospel. He has a sense of clarity and wisdom and inner peace and poise. Resting in God, hearing his voice. It's a both and. It's a both and. But then that fifthly leads me, come on team, to the fifth counter habit. The idea of indifference or freedom. Everybody say freedom. There's a theologian named Ignatius of Loyola in the Protestant Reformation. Now he writes in Spanish, not English. And so he talks about this thing called indifference. But indifference, I don't like that word. There's a better translation for it. It's the title of my message. Freedom. 
am I really free? So that fifth stage is freedom. And what he meant by freedom, watch this church, is that you are freed at an emotional level from the need of your life to go a certain way to be happy or at peace. You don't have to have your life turn out the way you thought it should turn out to be at peace. That's freedom. Mystics call this detachment. Modern Christian psychologists call it yieldedness. But it's the very simple idea that whatever come may, whatever come what may, good or bad, we're okay. And that's not stoic, and that's not emotionally repressed. It's we feel emotions, but our sense of joy and our peace and our hope is not dependent upon my life having to go the way I want my life to go. I think that's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 14. He says, do not fear. He's not saying, do not worry, nothing bad will happen to you because he's going to go to the cross. Jesus is saying, no matter what happens to you, even death itself, you don't need to fear. Y'all, I'm so struck by Jesus' line in Revelation 1.18 where he says, I hold the keys of death in Hades. Last night at about 8.30, I talked to my uncle whose body was completely shutting down. What made it so hard is his brain lasted to the very end. And I looked at him through that FaceTime and I said, Mo, you know Jesus. And right now, probably within the next hour, you're going to meet that Savior. Hear me. You have nothing to be afraid of because Jesus holds the keys to death itself. Folks, do you understand what the troops are trying to tell you to do? If you do not have to fear death and hell, what in the world could you really else be afraid of? What in the world is there to be afraid of? If Jesus went through hell and out the other side, then no matter what you go through, He will go through it with you. He'll go right through hell with you and take you out the other side. I have the keys to death and Hades. Now, there's two ways of dealing with anxiety. Either try to fix all your problems so you don't have anything else to pray or worry about. Good luck with that. Or you can become a person where you realize, listen, I'm okay with my problems. That doesn't mean I roll over and play dead. It doesn't mean I'm passive. It means I do everything I can to fix my problems. I make things right with people. I plan for the future. And then what comes, comes. And I'm okay with that. I don't need to fear. I don't need to manipulate people. I don't need to blame people. I need to just be okay. I want God's deepening life to take place in my life. Don't scramble to try to control everything. No, I'm free to not have to have my life turn out the way I think my life has to turn out. Because listen, church, when fear is running the show, Love gets repressed. When I parent my kids out of fear and anxiety, try to latch on, love is repressed. But when I, what? Love. When I become a non-anxious presence to become a person of love, a person of prophetic pastoral leadership, that's what God desires out of us. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.